add my welcome to you all. Those of you that I have not met yet, my name is Greg Durenberger. I'm also one of the elders here at Emmaus Road Church and the senior pastor. And I, too, want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. There are some who think of a Christian as someone who, if they confess their sin to God and ask God for forgiveness, they're forgiven. And at that moment, they're not under condemnation. But if they should sin again, and they inevitably will sin again, then they are back once more under condemnation. And then they repent and confess their sin again, asking God for forgiveness, and the Lord is faithful and just, forgives them of their sin, they're cleansed once more. So, to them, the, the Christian is a person who is constantly passing from one status to another status. Back and forth they go, condemned, not condemned, blameworthy, not blameworthy, cut off, accepted, righteous, unrighteous. For them, the Christian life is this roller coaster, right? This roller coaster. So we, we, there's, there's a cheer that goes with this, I think, and uh, showed up at the softball game the other night. We won't do that right now, I guess. But uh, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, the greatest book, chapter, and the greatest book of the Bible, such a framework represents a misunderstanding of the status of a child of God. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, a Christian is a person who can never be condemned. He, she, can never come into a state of condemnation ever again. And therefore, the great theme of Romans 8 is the Christian's security, the absolute certainty of complete salvation for everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this uh, perhaps above all else, is why, shoot, I forgot to put this on, every day is great uh, with Romans 8, right? You need to get one of these. Now, now today, I want to draw your attention in particular to verses 5 through 9. But I want to do my best to capture Paul's flow of thought. So I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. And um, I want to invite you, if you're able, please stand and uh, follow along attentively, carefully as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through the first half of verse 9. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is God's faith-birthing, mind-blowing word. Let's pray together. And Lord, I would ask that you would do that very thing, that you would beget believing, that you would birth trusting. And we're trusting in your promise that faith comes, faith is birthed, faith emerges in our hearts By hearing, hearing this agency of your word, this tool in your, the hands of your Holy Spirit is the means that you use to create believing out of unbelieving, create trusting where there is none. And Lord, we also understand that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we pray that you might be pleased to beget such faith among us by the power of your Spirit. That you are pleased. That you are honored and you are glorified. And Lord, by faith, We receive the Holy Spirit by which there is rivers of living water that flow from within. By this Spirit, there is a sense in us that we belong to you. We're your children. By faith and this working of the Holy Spirit, we we have a, a sense that heaven is real and we have a sense that we're actually going there. Would you strengthen this work among us? Confidence, assurance, 
deep security. And so, Lord, once again, we just ask that you would beget, birth, strengthen, deepen, intensify believing hearts among your people now for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, perhaps you have ridden on that roller coaster of condemned, not condemned, cut off, accepted, righteous, unrighteous, blameworthy, blameless. The fact is we, we all have, haven't we? That's, that's the very reason Paul is so emphatic when he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no, there's, there, there's no gra- grammatical construction construct that with more force than that. And yet, sadly, many Christ followers walk more days than not with this kind of a low-grade condemnation fever. I blew it again. Committed that sin again. Loser, 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 what a loser. You know, you're a lousy husband, lousy father, you're a lousy pastor. You are a lousy Christian. And, and, and there we languish in this strange kind of a gray area of good Christian, not so good Christian, serious Christian, carnal Christian, as if there were some spectrum of Christian. And depending on where you feel that you're at on the Christianity spectrum today determines the temperature of one's condemnation fever. But the Apostle Paul is out to do away with this notion of a Christianity spectrum and his aim is to free us from false condemnation. His aim is to build us up that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord in every way. And this is what he prays, this is what Paul prays in Colossians 1 verses 9 and 10. We've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And that's my prayer for me and for you. Now, how does Paul tackle this pandemic, if you will, of guilt and shame? His tactic, it seems, at least in this situation, to engender assurance through eliminating these gray areas. He, he aims to conquer condemnation by doing away with the Christianity spectrum. And rather than offering encouragement with a, a comforting, there, there, I, I know, I know, you know, we all have our bad days. Presence of remaining sin is still a problem. Doubt can get real. 
Spiritual declension is a genuine category. I know, I know. For reasons perhaps we'll never know perfectly this side of eternity. God does seem to distance himself from his children at times. But Jesus is gentle. Jesus is lowly. Jesus is sensitive and promises he will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul doesn't do that this time. Now, most certainly there is a time and a place for that kind of comfort. In fact, the Bible is full of that kind of comfort and encouragement for Christians under conviction. But in this text... In Romans chapter 8, Paul is asserting a different strategy for encouraging the doubtful and the spiritually downcast. Paul builds assurance here, spiritual security here, by drawing a a darker line. His line of reasoning runs like this. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now absolutely no condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus, joined to Christ Jesus by grace through faith. How is that so? Because they have experienced new birth according to the power of God. Romans chapter 8 verses 2 and 3. The law of the spirit of life, that's regeneration, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by faith, could not do. Namely, you who once were dead, slaved to sin, you're now alive and free. God did that. So, fearful Christian. Stand back and be amazed at what God has done. He saved you. He's justified you. How? Well, He did it by sending His own Son, the Lord Jesus, to live a perfect life and to die a sin-atoning death. And in doing so, the just penalty for sin is paid in full. Condemned. Once for all in the body of Jesus on the cross. That's verse 3. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. God poured out His punishment, the punishment you deserved on Jesus on the cross, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. That's taken care of. What you couldn't do, Jesus did. And in doing it, He did it all. He took your sin and your guilt, and the condemnation that you justly deserved and exchanged it for His own personal fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. Yeah, but Paul, (laughs) Jesus did that for who? Let me get this straight. Who is counted as if they never sinned? Who is counted as if they had always believed? Who, you ask? Why, it is those who are in Christ Jesus. That's who. Those who have been made new. Those who have been set 
free from the law of sin and death and have been made alive to God so that they might turn and trust Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. That's who. Yeah, but Paul, how do we know? How can we be sure this is true of us? How can we be certain that we are no longer today or ever under such fearful condemnation. And to this, Paul proceeds to show that the distinction between those who have experienced new birth and those who have not experienced new birth is nothing short of dramatic. The great difference between Christians and non-Christians is as radical as day and night, life and death, flesh and spirit. You cannot miss it. You cannot fake it. And if you're fearful that you may still be under condemnation for your failure to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law, Paul says, listen, listen. There's only two kinds of people. There's only two kinds of people in this world, unregenerate and regenerate. And the way they are, the way they live, could not be more dissimilar. Let me show you. And so he shows us. And the first thing he shows us is that one is under the flesh while the other is under the Spirit. The unregenerate live in accordance with the flesh, after the flesh, under the governing authority of the flesh. And the regenerate, on the other hand, live in accordance with the Spirit, or after the Spirit, or under the governing authority of the Spirit. And the difference is dramatic. Look at verse 5 again. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, a non-Christian is someone who is habitually dominated by the nature in which they were born. They are characterized by a certain mindset. They're, they're, they set their minds on certain things. To mind, that's a deliberate action, right? It's, it's, uh, we use the phrase, you know, mind your own business. And what we mean is stop fixing your attention, fixing your thoughts on me and my actions, fix your attention and your thoughts on your own concerns. And non-Christians deliberately, habitually fix their attention and thoughts on things that are completely contrary to the things of the Spirit of God. And so if, if you're wondering, could that be me? Is that what I do? Paul would say... It's just not that subtle. 
It's not that nuanced. It's, it's different. You want to know what minding the flesh looks like? Paul describes it explicitly in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, where he writes, the works of the flesh are evident. It is, they're discernible. It's not vague. You don't have to wonder about this. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Dominated by that. And if that's what dominates you, it would be pretty obvious. Commenting on Romans chapter 8, verse 5, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, The things of the flesh means that every aspect of life without God, everything in life from which God is excluded. It refers, in other words, to the life of this world only. It denotes a complete severance from all that is spiritual. There's no soul there. There's no God there. No spirit there. It is all after, under, according to the flesh. All. But the mindset of the Christian is attentive to the things of the Spirit. The regenerate soul, unlike the unregenerate soul, is attracted by, interested in, drawn toward things rightly and sincerely related to God. God is life-giving to them. To be interested in religion, that's not the same thing as having the mindset of the Spirit. To be interested in theology, that's, that's not the same thing as living according to the Spirit. I mean, just consider Jesus' most ardent opponents. Very religious, very theologically oriented, very opposed to Christ. Those who have experienced new birth are awakened. The spiritual things. They're concerned about their souls. They're sensitive to sin. They're mindful of their spiritual, eternal destiny. And they are appropriately uneasy with anything that would cloud or disturb their relationship with God. That's, that's, why, when, that's why when somebody says to me, oh, I just don't know, I... I feel so little, if any, affection for the Lord. I mean, I read my Bible and it holds out such incredible promises like joy unspeakable and peace that passes understanding and rivers of living water. That's not me. <laughs> Concern and condemnation. But, but look. 
that concern, even that condemnation, an unregenerate person would simply not feel that. Do you recognize your need for Christ? Is Jesus attractive to you? You know, the, the work of the Spirit is to magnify the glory and the greatness of Jesus. And, and the regenerate soul, at the very least, at the very lowest level, desires to feel at least some desire to know and love Jesus more. Second massive difference between non-Christians and Christians is one is dead to God and the other is Alive to God. The reason that the unregenerate person has no spiritual mindset, there's just no Godward impulse, is because they remain in a state of spiritual death. They're dead to God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, that's how all of us were at one time. You were dead. You're dead as a rock in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And the unregenerate are still dead. There's no spiritual pulse, no spiritual vital signs whatsoever. They exist as though God did not. And that's why Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. You're dead. They're tone deaf to God. They're blind to God. They're dead to spiritual realities. Shut out of the life of God. And it goes without saying that the difference between death and life, it's not a subtle thing. Think about the, you know, think about the next time you're at a funeral and there's an open casket. That body laying there is a picture of a soul untouched, by the spirit of life. I, I, I still remember, it stays with me, um, an old PBS program called Cosmos. Cosmos was hosted by Carl Sagan. Um, I think he's dead now, but Carl Sagan, he was an astrophysicist, astronomer, scientist, entertainer. And uh, what was striking about Sagan and his program, um, despite denying that he was an atheist, he, he would stand in front of this, this huge screen, right? This full screen background photo of the galaxy. And there would be, you know, gazillions of stars and planets and quasars and comets and whatnot. And, and, and he'd stand there and he, he'd be looking at that, pointing at it, and he, and he said, if God were real, I just wish he would show himself to me. He, he would look at the wonder of the universe and see nothing but stars and planets. God made no impression on Carl Sagan. God had no effect on Carl Sagan. It's because Carl Sagan was spiritually dead to God. But for the person who has experienced new birth, he, she is alive to God. There's something there. 
And it won't let you go. And since it al- it's alive, it's, it's never static. That, that means that there are ebbs and flows. There are highs and lows. There are joys and sorrows and days when you feel like you could fly and days when you can hardly get out of bed. And it's a developmental thing. You know, it it can be less or smaller, but increases. It can be dormant and, and seemingly gone like it's under the soil someplace. And then up it comes and fruit. And so where one is at today could be way different than five years, ten years, twenty years from now. Spiritual life, a heart alive and responsive to God, you know it when you've got it. Lloyd-Jones again, and you know by now you may have deduced my appreciation for the 20th century theologian. He, he writes, you may have your difficulties and your doubts, but if this life is in you, you will know there's a difference. And that in spite of yourself, there is a power within you, a presence, something other than yourself which is there. And do what you will. You cannot get away from it. And therein lies assurance. An assurance intended to fortify a soul against condemnation. There's a third discernible difference between the unregenerate and the regenerate. And that is that one is at enmity with God while the other is at peace with God. The unregenerate soul is unhappy with God's will. Just, duh. Don't like having this authority over me. Poses God, God's purpose. Paul writes in verse 7, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, there is a mindset that is fixed in unrelenting adversarial rebellion against God. It's antagonistic. It willfully refuses to pay any attention to what God says or comply with God's will. And since it will not be subjective, subject to God, it seems as God, it sees God as, as the enemy. I'm going to determine what's best for me. I will decide what's right and wrong. I will choose my lifestyle, my gender, my plumb line for truth. I demand atonement for an injustice on my terms. I'll make up my own mind about sin and righteousness. I'll be true to my own desires. I will do as I please, and don't you dare tell me I'm wrong. And whether they acknowledge it or not, that soul has set itself up as God and has determined to bow the knee to no other. They know they're against God. 
and, and with such knowledge of such enmity, they're unsettled. They're troubled within. How could they not? And again, loved ones, I, I believe that Paul is saying, well, if, if that's you, th- then yes, you are now under God's condemnation. So is that you? To be spiritually minded, on the other hand, is peace, life and peace. Verse 6, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So rather than enmity with God, the regenerate heart is at peace with God, seated at his table. It's at peace with God because it's agreeable with God. And it's agreeable with God because it has a true conception of God. You know, the word repentance means to change your mind about God. It means thinking rightly about God. And a Christian perspective about God is that God's will is no longer something I resent. God's will is not something I I resist. And God himself is no longer someone I hate. And since there's peace with God, you're at peace with yourself. There's peace within. And when there's peace within, you're at peace in a world that is as turbulent and soul-crushing as it can get. You hear Paul say something like, he does in Romans 8.32, he says, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The, the regenerate heart hears that and just, your heart melts. In Jesus' death on the cross, God has put away your sins. God's no longer someone you're contending against. And, and, and you turn and you repent of your hard thoughts and your rebellion and enmity. Repentance means that the old walls, the old barriers between us and God are gone. And according to the spirit that is now at work within you, the righteous requirement of the law that you once hated, that you once found impossible to fulfill, you now agree with it. (laughs) According to the spirit that's now at work within you, the, the righteous requirement of the law is written on your heart. According to the spirit now alive in you, you want God's will. You want God's ways. You trust and value His wisdom and His commands. You bend the knee to God as God. Listen to Paul again. Just marvel at this. Verses 6 and 7. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And, and as a 
believer, you read that and, and you think, you know, if, if the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and will not submit to God's law, but I do, I do submit to God's law. You see what a miracle that is? If, if a mind fixed on the things of the flesh is hostile to God, but you're not hostile to God, but rather you repent and you agree with God, do you see what has happened to you? Do you recognize the work of the Spirit? The natural, unregenerate mind doesn't submit to the requirements of God's righteous law. It cannot But your heart and your mind say, by God's grace, I want to. According to the power of the Spirit at work within me, I will. And since I am at peace with God, in Christ, joined to Christ, the righteous requirement of God's law has, in fact, already been fulfilled in me, by me. In union with Christ. Listen to verses 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Is the Spirit of God active in you? I think you know. Ra rather than looking to your subjective sense of where you stand at this very moment on this condemnation spectrum, try asking yourself this. Is your mind set on opposing God? No? Is your mindset fixed in rebellion and hostility to God and His righteous commands? It's not? Do you see anything desirable about Christ Jesus? Anything of value to you in that God-man? You do? Is there any concern within your heart towards the things that concern the Holy Spirit? Like walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing Him in every way? There is? Loved ones, listen. Dead people cannot give themselves this kind of spiritual life. Unregenerate people do not possess this kind of disposition. And look, if you have never professed your agreement with God and His righteous will, well then, now is the time to do it. God, you're right 
I bend my knee to you and to your will. If you have never entrusted yourself to Christ, placing your condemnation-worthy sins on Him and receiving His righteousness, fulfilling life for you, now is the time to do it. Jesus, I take you. I receive the perfect life that you lived as my own and I receive the death you died for sins, my sins as the death I should have died. I take you. I trust you. Save me. And if you have never responded to that stirring in your inner being, that awakening of your soul, my friends, now is the time to do it. Spirit of the living God, come and fill me now. Do that for all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there is, therefore, now and forever, no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we acknowledge that such a great salvation is an astonishing, unspeakably great gift. And flesh and blood are of no help in making any of that happen. And so we're relying on you. We're relying on your motive of bringing honor, glory, worship, praise to your name for grace and mercy so that We couldn't boast about it. But all we can do is bend the knee to you and say thank you again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. So we're trusting you now, oh God. Bring honor and glory to your name yet again. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage those who live with fears and doubts and some degree of condemnation. Oh God, would you just reveal by the powerful working of your Spirit such a great, such great assurances because of such a great decisive work. Leave no doubts. For your people, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.